Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. We'll be looking through the book of Colossians for uh, the next couple weeks here. And this is a book that our church has been through before. So Pastor Lance, this was his uh, first sermon series that he did, was the book of Colossians back in 2017, I think. Does that sound right? Uh, so he sent me his, uh, his sermons to look at. <laughs> so full disclosure, uh, this is Pastor Lance repackaged here. So... Uh, it was really fun at the top of his first sermon. The first sentence was, this is my first sermon here as your pastor. And so it was just, it was really cool. And uh, yeah, it's just really underlined uh, his leadership here, life in our supreme and sufficient savior uh, from the book of Colossians. And so uh, it's something that's been in uh, our past that you may remember if you were here. So where is, oh boy clicker doesn't work. Oh, there it goes. Where is uh, Colossae? So it's right here. So at the time of writing here, uh, Paul is in prison in Rome. So uh, he wrote it about 60 to 61 uh, while he was in prison, and he sent it uh, by the hand of Tychicus, yeah, Tychicus, uh, to be delivered to the church in Colossae. So at the end of chapter 4, we find out that another letter was sent with Tychicus, uh, the book, or it's called a letter of Laodicea. So you might recognize the the name Laodicea from one of the letters in the book of Revelation. Uh, There's a letter from uh, Jesus to the church there. Uh, We don't have that letter. Uh, One theory that I kind of like is that it's just the book of Ephesians that we know. And since Tychicus would have come down and passed through Ephesus and then gone to Laodicea and then Colossae, that uh, it was just read in the churches. And that's part of what's mentioned at the end of chapter 4 is that he says, read the, church, read the letter to the church of Laodicea as well amongst you. So these were written to specific churches with specific issues, but they were also meant to be read uh, amongst all the churches. Uh, So you can see there, uh, we're going to zoom in in a second, but uh, Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis are all kind of in the same valley, and they're about 10 or so miles away from each other. And then Ephesus is more like 100 miles away. So you can see here, there was a route that went from Ephesus down through Laodicea uh, through Colossae. So... That's probably the route that Tychicus made on his way through. So he carried at least three letters that we know of. He also brought the letter to Philemon, which was written to a person in the Colossian church. So in in Philemon 2, there's only one chapter, so it's the second verse. In Philemon 2, it mentions that uh, the church in Colossae meets in Philemon's house. So Philemon isn't uh, the pastor there, as far as we know, or uh, a deacon or anything like that. He's just uh, a person in the church, a believer, and he hosts the church within his own house. So he was probably a wealthy man. And we know from the book of Philemon, the purpose of that being written is that his slave that had ran away, uh, Paul had led to the Lord. And so he's encouraging Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Uh, so that's kind of the layout of, of where they're at geographically. And uh, it's great to think about how uh, I don't think Paul ever went to Colossae. Uh, it's not mentioned in the book of Acts. He may have gone there. Uh, but the gospel spread as disciples made more disciples. And uh, actually one theory, we'll read about it in verse 7 of chapter 1, 
uh, it mentions that they learned the gospel from Epaphras, and Paul calls him a, a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister. Uh, one theory is that Epaphras planted the church uh, in Colossae, uh, that maybe he was uh, the church planting pastor there. So the gospel came there, and now Paul has heard news of how they're doing, and he wants to write and uh, commend them for some things and help them with some things. So kind of zooming out on epistles as a whole, most epistles aren't written to an individual. So Philemon is an example of where it is. So Paul is confronting Philemon and saying, hey, you should forgive your, your servant because he's a brother in Christ and you should let him come back unpunished. Most of the other epistles, uh, besides the ones that are named after people, so like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, they're written to churches, to a group of believers. And so Colossians is one of those where Paul writes it to many. And uh, what, what is uh, this epistle about? Well, it's somewhat of a pastoral theology. So it's not just theology, you know, marked out in bullet points, how we might uh, read a theology book today. Paul is using the theology that he knows to help them uh, to follow the Lord and to walk with him. So it's very practical, helpful, applicable uh, theology to their situation. And so Paul's goal was to help the church as a whole. And it's helpful to us because sometimes we get, you know, we narrow our view so much that it's just about me and my walk with the Lord. But a lot of the epistles are very much, you know, our walk with the Lord as a body of believers in a specific location. And so this is one of those books. Uh, we already mentioned that Paul wrote this while he was in prison uh, in Rome. So in uh, verse 18 of chapter 4, he says he wrote it by his own hand. And he says, remember me, or remember my chains. So he's uh, still in prison awaiting uh, to be able to see uh, Caesar there in Rome. Uh, yeah, there's a Puritan who wrote uh, The Christian in Complete Armor. His name is William Gurnall. Uh, he's not a well-known Puritan, but I came across this book and I was reading it the other day. And it's more about Ephesians, but he kind of makes a comment that's applicable to uh, some of the prison epistles, as we call them, the, the epistles that Paul wrote while he was uh, in prison in Rome. So he wrote this uh, about Paul. Uh, so it's, it's a little funny uh, because he's mocking Satan for like, you shouldn't have locked up Paul because now everyone's getting saved because he wrote these awesome epistles. So I'll read it. But this holy man was not so fond of liberty or life as to purchase them at the least hazard to the gospel. He knew too much of another world to bid so high for, enjoying of, for the enjoying of this. And therefore he is regardless what his enemies can do with him, well knowing he should go to heaven whether they would or no. No, the great care which lay upon him was for the churches of Christ. As a faithful steward, he labors to set the house of God in order before his departure. We read of no dispatches sent to court to procure his liberty, but many to the churches to help them to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ had made them free. There is no such way to be even uh, with the devil and his instruments for all their spite against us as by doing what good we can wherever we become. The devil had as good have left Paul alone, for he no sooner comes into prison, but he falls a preaching at which the gates of Satan's prison fly open and poor sinners come forth. So it's just a fun perspective of, uh, that I think Paul shared, even while he was in prison, that God has me here to appeal to Caesar. We know that as we study the book of Acts. But he has me here as well to write down the inspired word of God and to help these churches. And uh, I just love his perspective of like, you thought you had him, Satan, but you confined him to a desk and he wrote the Bible. So <laughs> look who has the last laugh. Uh, yeah, it was written around AD 60 to 61. Um, we already mentioned that the church met together in Philemon's house. We know that from the other letter, Philemon. So why was the book written? 
Paul will mention here at the beginning uh, how thankful he is that he's heard that they're, they're loving the Lord, they're following the gospel, and uh, that they're living in the Spirit. Uh, so he has some commendations for them, but he also mentions uh, some things to help them as they walk through life um, and as false teachers have come. So first of all, how did Paul know about the state that they were in? Um, we know that Paul greets uh, at the end here, or no, sorry, it's in Philemon 23. <clears throat> this is helpful for us. So Paul is actually in prison with uh, Epaphras. All right, so I'm going to read Philemon 23. Someone have that? Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Yeah, so... Paul mentions there that Epaphras is his fellow prisoner and that he greets them as well in the same group of letters uh, that comes to them. So Paul has heard from Epaphras uh, what the state of the church is, and you know Epaphras shares both the good and the bad. He, he knows uh, the good things that are going on, but also the struggles they're facing. So false teachers have promised ritual ways to experience God's presence and blessing. So uh, in the way that they've promised, you know, you do these certain things and you'll feel closer to God. That's the mysticism. And that if you do these certain things, you'll receive God's blessing or favor. So legalism. So in these ways, uh, the church is trying to determine if Christ is sufficient for them or not. So our theme verse comes from chapter 2. So Paul is addressing that they, they want to feel closer to God by doing these rituals, and they want the blessing of God by doing certain things. So in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, he says, For in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So throughout the book, the fullness of God is key. And Paul is very specific that Jesus uh, within him is all the fullness of God. So God, Jesus is fully God. And then we are complete in Jesus. So we don't need extra things to feel closer to God because we're as close as we can be in Jesus. So this isn't to say that we don't need to repent of our sins when we break fellowship with him. Uh, I think we see that like in the book of James, uh, where it tells us to wash our hands, you filthy sinners, to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So I think in the circumstances of when we sin against God and we break our fellowship with him by turning away from him in sin, we, we can draw near to God by repenting of our sin and fellowshipping with him again and following him. But I think in the sense of, you know, I just don't feel like Jesus is with me today. That's a feeling that Paul is addressing here and saying, you can't just do certain things and then feel like it's more true. He's saying it is true. Jesus has the fullness of God and you are complete in him. So you don't need mysticism, you don't need rituals of certain things you do to feel closer to God because you are as close as you can be to God. And then the same thing with God's blessing. You know, I don't go to church or read my Bible and, you know, start my day off in the right ritual so that God will bless me throughout my day. I have all of the blessings, as Ephesians 1 says, in Christ. So I can't earn more blessing from God or, or do certain things to get more blessing. I have all of God's blessing in, in Jesus. So that idea of the fullness of God is in Jesus and we're complete in him is how Paul addresses uh, some of this legalism and mysticism. So what were they doing? Uh, if you go to verse 18 of chapter 2, he talks about, let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up of his fleshly mind. So things have happened now where people are worshiping angels because angels are closer to God. And so it's almost like, uh, you know, you go through an angel because an angel is in the presence of God in heaven. 
and uh, interest and things like that. So as we think about uh, how this helps us, this is somewhat of an overstatement, but what if the Christian life is less about feeling close to God and more about us slowly learning and trusting about who Jesus is and what he has already done for us? So Jesus has fully accomplished our salvation and provided everything we need to grow and mature and to become a mature believer. So when I, you know, when I pray, like, help me to feel closer to you today, God, I think that's a fine thing to pray, but we already have everything we need in the Christian life. And so it's not that God doesn't still give us good gifts and help us with things, but we already have everything. We already have the full blessing of God and the full presence of God living inside of us. Uh, so what if life is less about, uh, you know, feeling closer to God and more about learning what we already have from God in Jesus? Do you see that slight difference uh, that, that maybe would change the way we, we think about our Christian life? So in, uh, we'll, we'll get into this next week, it talks about the preeminence of Christ and how we should be increasing in the knowledge of God. And that's a key theme in chapter one. And the idea is not that, you know, we're, we're drawing nearer to God in a mystical way or we're doing these things to uh, get the blessing of God. The idea is that we're growing in who God is and our knowledge of who God is and our knowledge of what God has already done for us and is doing for us. And that is what is growing us and producing fruit in us, is uh, that knowledge of God. So I don't know if that slight difference makes sense. And I say overstated there because it's true as well that you know, we can feel closer to God and it's not a bad thing to pray as well. But I think when uh, the New Testament talks about being close to God, uh, it's usually an issue of unrepentance where we need to turn away from our sin and ask for forgiveness and trust Christ. So this leads us to our theme that uh, we can live life in our supreme and sufficient Savior. So he provides everything we need and uh, we can follow him. I think our uh, clicker is given out on us. So this is a diagram from a, a survey book and it's his way, uh, he kind of is trying to show the, the heresy or the false teaching that they're believing. So he shows kind of two sides that the people are kind of thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm evil and flesh is bad and I need to kind of rise up from where I'm at and experience God or gain something from him in blessings. So, you know, it could have been uh, in an upward way of where they're seeking to uh, experience God in mysticism and kind of steps up to God. So you can kind of see the, you know, the exaggerated going up. And that's just not where we're at as believers in God through Christ. We're already there. We're in Christ and he is seated in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 talks about how we're, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So there's no ascending to God that we need to do because we have been ascended in Jesus. So uh, mysticism falls short of what life is really like in Christ. And then a similar thing where we try to bring God lower or get things from God by doing certain things and uh, it just it doesn't work that way either. <clears throat> Um, so yeah, as we think through why the book of Colossians is so helpful for us today, um, I think these are in your notes there, you know, the, the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ is under attack both in the world around us, um, even in, in churches and in, uh, you know, previously Bible-believing organizations, and in our own lives, uh, that is under attack as well. So in the world, some of the ways the supremacy of Christ is under attack is that, you know, people say that he's not divine, he was just a good man, or he didn't actually rise from the dead and defeat death. Uh, 
uh, or maybe he's just another created being. And so the, the attack is that his, his complete power and preeminence and supremacy isn't an actual thing because he's just another guy or he didn't actually rise from the dead. And then his sufficiency is under attack as well. Uh, you know, people would say that there's many ways to get to heaven. I don't need the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, you know, there's other ways. Jesus isn't sufficient for my salvation. Uh, one that, that's tricky and, and sneaks in in Christian circles is that second one. Uh, he really helps us, but there are other resources too. So we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus really sufficient for my Christian life, or do I need to add on these other things uh, to help me as well? Not that other things can't be helpful, but do we, do we live like Jesus is sufficient? You know, that's the real test case is, I can say that, but do I live like it? Uh, and then, he's pretty good, but I still need to live this way to earn salvation or you know, less to, to feel close to God. And so I do these things because it makes me feel good or makes me feel close to God. And those things might not be bad, but we're already uh, united with Jesus. Uh, and then in our own lives, the supremacy of Jesus is under attack uh, when we say, I'll live the way I want to do. You know, I'll do what I want. I don't have to follow the Lord. Or maybe I'll give him Sundays, but the rest of the week is for me. And so, you know, I'll go to church and sacrifice my, my Sunday morning, but I'm going to do what I want the rest of the week. Um, yeah, and then down to the sufficiency of Christ being under attack. Uh, we might think, if I do enough good things, if I help enough people or give enough money, God will bless me. And that's just not the way it worked. That's the way it worked with Israel. If they kept the... Uh, the covenant that they had made with God, God would bless them. If they broke the covenant, God would curse them. And that's just not the way our relationship works with Christ. Uh, we are always blessed by God through Christ. Uh, the second one there, he helps me on Sundays, but I need someone to turn to during the week. And so even thinking through, is Christ the one that's sufficient for me to depend on and lead on, lean on in life? And then I know his way is right, but does that really mean every other way is wrong? And then lastly, who am I? And so we'll look a little bit more closely at that last one, how Jesus has changed our identity forever because he's saved us. Uh, so the last introductory piece here is the book is kind of broken apart um, in, in two phases where uh, the first part addresses the preeminence or the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in Christian thinking and then the preeminence of uh, Christ in Christian living. So when we get to the Christian living part, it talks about uh, how we're to live and how the home is to be as believers and how we're to fellowship with one another. But most of the class is on the first part of Christian uh, thinking, how we're to think, what we're to believe. Uh, that leads us to the right way of living. So even in chapter 1 here, uh, it's repeated three times. Paul reminds them, you've heard this, you've heard this, you've heard this. In verse 5, verse 6, and verse 23, referring back to the gospel. He's reminding them that you've heard this and believed it. And it's a reminder that we're, we're a people of the ear, you know, how can they believe on him and who they have not heard? So someone tells us the good news, we hear it, we believe, and then we act on it. And so that's kind of the, the progress of uh, how our lives work, is, is someone shares the truth with us or we read about it ourselves. And so it comes in, we think about it, we choose to believe it uh, by faith in God, and we uh, walk with him. So we're going to work through the first eight uh, verses tonight. And what we see in these verses is that Jesus has changed our lives forever. So in these first two verses, uh, we're going to look at how Jesus has changed our identity. So Paul introduces himself, he introduces Timothy, and he says, I'm writing this to certain people. And 
the way he describes this has all been changed by Jesus converting these people. So uh, it starts out there, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So an apostle was someone who had seen the risen Lord. So it's someone that Jesus had specifically chosen to be a disciple, but then also to uh, see Christ uh, visibly risen from the dead. And so we know that happened uh, when Paul was on the road and Jesus appeared to him. And he notes that it's by the will of God. And so we see here that Jesus did not just convert Paul, and it was a dramatic conversion because he went from killing the church to leading the church. Uh, he gave him a new purpose. So he doesn't just say, you know, I'm a believer. He, he notes how God has set his life on a direction uh, to lead the church as an apostle. So God chose to both convert and send Paul on this mission. <clears throat> and I, you know, in my own life, uh, in the past, when I think about the purpose of my life and what I want to do and who I want to be, it's easy to leave Jesus out of that. It's easy to think of what do I enjoy doing? You know, what resonates with who I am? Uh, what do people like about me? Uh, what do I like to do for work? Uh, you know, I really enjoy education. Maybe I'll, you know, go back to school. Uh, all these thoughts have gone through my head, and they're not wrong thoughts, but are they thoughts that are driven remembering the new purpose I have because Jesus has changed my identity forever as a believer in him. So he doesn't just convert us. He does that, praise the Lord, but he also gives us new purpose as we see in the life of Paul. Uh, he gives us a new family. So Paul points out both his brother Timothy and uh, the saints and faithful brethren um, in Christ who are in Colossae. So the whole book, uh, he, he points out that, that Timothy is with him. He's not really a co-author per se, but he's probably someone that the Colossians knew. And once we get down to about verse 9, the person changes from we to I. So most of the book is written from Paul to these people, but the first greeting part is uh, both Paul and Timothy greeting them. So Paul has his brother in the faith, his brother in ministry, Timothy, and then he's writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So the saints and faithful brethren aren't two different groups. They're the same group, uh, describing them in two different ways. So the word saints there is the word for holy. So as a noun, it's used as saints. As an adjective, it's holy. So it's saying the, the ones who have been set apart to God, uh, who are the faithful brethren in Christ. And so we see that when we trust in Christ, we're, we're adopted into God's family, and we're given uh, brothers and sisters who also have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's another thing that's easy to, to just kind of shove aside for you know, the things that I want to do. Um, and even our earthly families, which we need to take care of and are important. But we, we also have our new family that Christ has given us. And that is such a privilege. You know, how many people have two families? Uh, unbelievers, they maybe have an earthly family, but oftentimes we have an earthly family and a family of people who are set apart to God and who are faithful brethren. So, Paul doesn't mean to exclude women when he says brethren. Uh, in those languages, it was used, the, the masculine term was used to include everybody. So some versions even say uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, so we see that God gives a new family, and then he also gives uh, a new position. So he points out two locations. They're both in Christ and they're in Colossae. So uh, this is a somewhat normal greeting, um, but again, it's, it's changed because Jesus has converted them and put them on mission there in Colossae. You know, he could have said, the citizens of Rome who reside in Colossae. That would have been true as well. But 
their most basic identification now is that they're in Christ, that they're believers residing or sojourning in Colossae. It's fun to read the early church fathers because they use sojourning a lot. That's how they greet each other in their greet. They're like, you know, hey, brother, sojourning in this city. And they just, they lived with the mindset of, you know, this is not my eternal home. This is a place that I'm to be on mission uh, serving the Lord where he has me. So we'll spend a lot of Colossians talking about uh, in Christ, and that's familiar to us too from the book of Ephesians. But it's uh, the, the true mark of a believer is that we are uh, outside of Christ and then placed in Christ um, as a believer. <clears throat> and then uh, he points out that they reside in Colossae. So this was written to real people who lived in a real city, who had real friends and family and real false teaching that they were facing. All these things, and uh, they, they received this letter and read it uh, all together. And this makes me think about, like, when we meet new people or greet someone, we, we have labels for ourselves that we'll share. So, you know, you think about the last time you met someone new. How did you describe yourself? Uh, you know, we, we have these, you know, I'm, you know, she's my wife, I'm her husband, these are my kids, I'm a father, uh, you know, I, I'm an engineer, you know, whatever it might be, all these labels... And that's not who we fundamentally are. Who we fundamentally are is uh, people who are in Christ, who have been converted by God and united to Christ. And that's helpful to us because those labels that we give ourselves or are assigned to us based on how our lives go, uh, they don't last forever. Those things go away. Um, and that can be really hard to work through because when we connect our identity to the labels that we hold, uh, when that label is removed from our lives because we don't control those things, it hurts really bad, right? And so when we rest in that I am a child of God who is in Christ and that will never be removed from me, you know, no matter what comes in my life, I lose my job, my spouse dies, my child dies. You know, any of these things, uh, they're hard and we, we mourn those things and we, we hate to go through those things. But we can ride the wave because we are in Christ. That is who God has made us uh, as believers in Jesus. And so thankfully, God has changed um, our lives forever and our identity by giving us this new position. Uh, and then the last one, nothing like breaking all these verses apart, uh, he gives us his grace and peace. So this is a somewhat familiar greeting of Paul. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's easy to fly over that, but it's true. Uh, we can... Uh, it's kind of a goodwill gesture, but we can say grace to you. We can, we, we're confident that because of who God is, we can, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but pray grace upon you or, or say God is, is gracious to you and uh, peaceful to you. So that's kind of the first uh, little chunk there where Paul introduces everybody and identifies the writers of the book, the recipients of the book, and some of those involved around the scenes. And I think he, he, you know, his identification of those people is clearly based on how God has changed them. Does anyone have any uh, thoughts or things to add about those first two verses? Yeah, Mary Lee. I'm still not clear on saints and faithful brethren. Yeah. As far as what it is or which... Well, I thought we were all saints. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't understand the difference. Right. Yeah, it's... Uh, there's a specific thing he's doing there in Greek uh, where because there's an article there, he's referring to the same group. 
So he doesn't, he's not trying to distinguish and say, I'm writing to the saints and the faithful brethren. He's saying, I'm writing to you, or I'm writing to all the people, and he uses two descriptors of the same group. So he's not trying to create two groups in their mind. He's describing the same group uh, using two descriptions. Right. So some versions take out the and and put in a comma. So it says, uh, to the saints, faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So I think the net version does that. Just to, it's called the Granville Sharp Rule, is the Greek rule. So, doesn't that sound exhilarating? <laughs> it's actually really important in a couple places because it, uh, it confirms, uh, I think it confirms in one epistle that Jesus is called Lord or something like that, like Lord and Savior, I don't know, something like that, where it's the same object that's being written about with two descriptions. So it's just something they did. It's kind of weird. All right, let's jump into uh, verses 3 through 8. So we'll see that Jesus has changed what we're thankful for. So we just came through Thanksgiving, and I don't know about your family, but it's common in my life that you know, you've gone around the table, around the living room, and shared something you're thankful for. And all good gifts come from God, and there's lots of things to be thankful for. But oftentimes, the things that an unbeliever is thankful for, a believer might be thankful in, uh, for the same things, but recognizing that that has come from God to them. So even as we read this, uh, Paul is very thankful for spiritual things for them. But as we think about being thankful for all things, we can recognize that the only way we can be thankful is if something came to me from outside myself. So thanksgiving for unbelievers is somewhat of an oxymoron because who are they being thankful for if you don't have someone who's given it? So I suppose you're thankful to each other and things like that. But uh, having God who gives us all good gifts uh, helps us in that category of being thankful. Uh, so first we'll see that we give thanks for hope, faith, and love. <clears throat> so in verse 3, uh, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So Paul mentions there that uh, we, so I think he's referring to Timothy and himself, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you. Uh, some of your versions might have put always up with give thanks, and I think that's correct. So every time um, when, they're, when they're praying for, when they think of the believers in Colossae, and they're praying for them, they always give thanks. So it's not that they're um, always praying for the believers in Colossae is that when they are praying for them, they always give thanks, if that makes sense. Uh, since we heard of your faith, so he mentions three things, that they, or two things that they've heard of. They, they've heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of their love for all the saints. So this is, again, a foundational thing to being a believer is you know, someone has heard the gospel, they've believed in Christ and been saved, um, and then they're walking with him and continuing to have faith in Christ and uh, loving the, the saints. So that's the same word as above, the holy ones, the ones set apart. <clears throat> and I think it's important to uh, mention here that, you know, Paul is hearing this news and I know in like a pastor's life, it's easy to hear about something that's going good for a church somewhere else and think, why isn't God doing that here? And to kind of be jealous and disappointed uh, that maybe God isn't, isn't working here or something like that. And, you know, we all experience that in different arenas of life. But Paul, I think, has the right attitude. He hears God is working, that these people are following him, and he's praising the Lord and thanking him for it. Uh, 
and so in verse 5, he kind of explains uh, the why. So he says, because the hope which is laid up in heaven uh, for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Um, and so the question is, you know, what is the, the hope? And is it like the, the hope we, we have in God? Or is it the objective hope that we will be, uh, that, that we're expectantly waiting uh, to go to heaven and things like that? So I think it's more of the, the objective sense. And so uh, we have this, this hope in God because uh, Jesus is in heaven. <clears throat> of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And so what started all this? They, they heard the gospel. And now he's going to explain um, how, how it came to them. So he says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. So in those first couple of verses, he, he explains what they're thankful for, uh, what he's thankful for for them, that they have hope, um, and then they also have faith uh, in Christ, and then love for one another. And then in this uh, next verse, he's going to give thanks for their spiritual fruit. <clears throat> so it starts out with which there, so he's referring back to the gospel, and he says, which has come to you, so the gospel, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit. So Paul's pointing out that uh, the gospel came to them, and it's kind of a weird way to think about it, that the gospel is doing something um, in that way. But it came to them, and it's going throughout all the world, and the gospel is producing fruit. And so this is part of what God is doing, is he's, he's saving people, um, and it's producing uh, fruit in these cities, and churches are growing, and uh, it's spreading throughout the world. Uh, so he's going to explain uh, kind of three ways here in which uh, the gospel is working. So notice uh, in verse 6, uh, as it has also in the world, and then uh, later on in verse 6, as it is also among you, and then down in verse 3, as you also learned from Epaphras. So all three of these are referring back to the gospel. And if you have the New King James, it puts it in italics because it's added in. So uh, we're, we're helping the English reader see that he's referring back to the gospel three times here in these verses. So the first thing... Uh, that the gospel has done is has brought forth fruit, and he gives thanks for that. And then um, in verse, uh, and then also in verse six. Sorry. Um, so it's brought forth fruit, and then as it also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God and truth. So the gospel's producing fruit in all the world, and then also among them. Uh, and again, since the first day you heard it. So they heard it, and they knew the grace of God and truth. And then lastly, in verse 7, um, as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. <clears throat> so Paul outlines uh, three ways that the gospel is working. And so it's producing fruit, uh, both around the world and amongst them. And then in verse 7, uh, the gospel came to them through human means. So God sent Epaphras to Colossae to spread the gospel. And so um, we can be thankful for ministry opportunities. And it's helpful to remember here uh, with Epaphras that he may have been kind of the, the church planning pastor there, we're not, we're not really sure, but he's in prison with Paul, like we mentioned from Philemon 23, and then he calls him our dear fellow servant or slave. So 
he's not, he, he uses the word here for slave. Uh, he's not really talking about service. He's talking about how they're slaves of God, that God has redeemed them from the slave market of sin, and now he's their master, and they must uh, follow their good master. So he identifies him as a dear fellow slave, and he is uh, the faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Um, so he ministered to them, but then he also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So he's the one who's brought the report back to Paul and Timothy, which has uh, brought about this, uh, the writing of this book. So we see through uh, these verses that Jesus changes um, our lives forever. And it's easy to, to think that and say that, um, but in our day-to-day -day lives, when we remember that Christ is sufficient, um, we can follow his will for our lives. So I know in my own life, when I doubt that God is going to do what he promised, I struggle to do what he's asked me to do. So a common example of that is evangelism. You know, God has asked me, he, he promised to save, to, to justify all those he calls. And my job is to go out and spread the call of God um, from Romans 8, 28 through 30. And I, I know that I am not going to save anybody. I know that God has promised to save all those he's called. And so when I trust in the supremacy and sufficiency of God to do what he's promised, I am then willing and able and ready to say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about how he died on the cross for my sins and rose again? And so the way, uh, the way we live our lives reveals what we actually believe about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. It's the same for his word. If I'm going to all other sorts of resources and the Bible isn't my final authority in life, uh, that reveals that I don't actually believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So it's a similar thing uh, with Christ, that if I'm uh, seeking uh, other avenues of, of different things, then it's, it's just showing and admitting that I am not actually believing in what Christ says is true of me. Uh, so now we can look at some application of this. So is Jesus supreme in your life? So I think these are in your notes, the, the block points here. So these are just some questions to, to think through. Am I, I, you know, I right now I would say I believe that Jesus is supreme and sufficient and I want to follow him. And then these are questions that help us think through, am I living that way? Am I living what I say I believe? So are you submitting to his purpose for you? Are you a faithful member of his family? Are you more proud of your earthly possessions or your possession in him? Are you enjoying and giving thanks for God's grace and peace? And then we can think through if we're living like he's sufficient, uh, like we actually uh, believe um, that that's true of him. Have you placed your trust in his death and resurrection in your place as the only way to be saved from the penalty of your sins? He is the only one sufficient to save you. Trust in him. If you have trusted in the sufficient Savior, are you content with him? Is his purpose for you enough? Is his family for you enough? Is his placement of you in him enough? Are his grace and peace to you enough? So these are really helpful to think through because a lot of the decisions we make in our lives are based on discontentment of what God has given us and where God has placed us. And when we trust in the sufficiency of where God has placed us in Jesus, then we can be content no matter what life looks like around us. And then thinking through those uh, last couple verses there, uh, he gives hope, faith, and love. So is Jesus sufficient to be your hope? Is, he sufficient, is his sufficient work on the cross strengthening your faith? Is his death and resurrection for you and for others sufficient to fuel your love for all the saints? Um, and then the next one, he grows spiritual fruit. Is the truth of God's word, specifically the gospel, 
sufficient to grow you and others? Have you seen it at work in your life? Then lastly, he generates real ministry. Is Jesus Christ supreme to direct you in ministry? Are you submitting to his direction to serve, love, and share the gospel? So these are helpful to us because it's just so easy to divert our lives into finding something else sufficient for us, something else supreme to follow. And Jesus, like we read um, in, in chapter 2, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. We're complete. We, we don't need anything else. Whatever uh, God has brought us through in life is great, and, and we can use that to glorify him, but that's not who we are. That's not where we find our uh, sufficiency from those things and our contentment. Uh, we look to Christ in whom we are complete for that. So I hope that's helpful to you, and I'm looking forward to working through the rest of the book. Uh, does anyone have any questions or thoughts that came to mind or ways we can apply this um, from the text tonight? Well, keep thinking through it, and as things come up, uh, let me know. And yeah, I want to tell you that I am not an expert of Colossians, so if I ever say anything really wrong, let me know. <laughs> because that would be bad, and I don't want to lead you astray. But I'm doing my best, so we're all learning together. All right, I will pray, and then we can break up into groups, and we'll have about 10 minutes uh, to pray together. Father God, we thank you for uh, the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that his death uh, is the way uh, for us to have life. And uh, we just pray that you'd help us to rest in our identity, that we've been made new in Christ, that we're in Him, and that we can uh, rest in that no matter what hard things come in life or even good things, and that we would find our contentment and satisfaction in Him alone. And uh, thank you for the good gifts you do give us, and help us to be thankful for those and to give you credit for um, those things. And uh, just pray for each one of us that uh, we would hear your word and believe it, and uh, that we would live by it, and that you'd be glorified through um, how you've changed our lives forever. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.